0: a country my shadow
1: welcome back to the Camino podcast episode 70 I'm Dave Whitson nobody
0: me my name.
1: why do people travel there are all kinds of answers of course beats working for one but I suspect that one of the most Common responses you'd get to that question is cultural immersion. People like the idea of being tossed into a completely different context and enjoying everything that entails new architecture, different arts and crafts, evocative rites and traditions, and maybe most of all, food. We travel for food. Now, I'm a vegetarian and so I confess that the Camino is not always a perfect fit. I'm probably better off food-wise in Portland, Oregon in most regards. Pilgrim menus in Spain are generally not the most satisfying experiences for me. I'm not complaining. It's my choice. I live with the consequences, and I'm grateful any time a host will take special measures to accommodate my needs. Even that time I got a plate full of instant rice with some peanut butter to melt over the top in a microwave. It was better than you might think. I recognize, though, that my life choices come at a cost on the cultural immersion front. Now, we're back on the Via Podiensis today, carrying forward in part 8 of this series. We'll be picking up the trail in Moisak, heading out on the canal for a morning stroll, and eventually working our way to Condom. Yes, yes, yes. Today's destination is Condom. It's spelled how you think it's spelled. Dennis and Lori Brooke joined me from Tacoma, Washington to laugh about that and mostly talk about more important matters on the walk. At this point in our pilgrimage, well into southern France, we're very much in duck country. It shows up on every menu, including on many gite dinners. The gites are always great about supporting my dietary restrictions, often swapping out the fowl for an omelette. But that cultural immersion thing, I know I'm missing out on a distinct aspect of the French cultural experience. That doesn't mean, though, that I can't sate my intellectual hunger for duck. In support of that, the second half of this episode features a conversation with Dr. Jean Levine, professor of environmental studies at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. I wanted to learn why duck has such a prominent role in French cuisine, and also to better understand the often intense debate surrounding the ethics of foie gras production, and Dr. Levine was the perfect fit for that thanks to the six weeks she spent working on a foie gras farm in France. While I didn't abandon my vegetarianism, I emerged with a whole new appreciation for this work. So what more could you want? Condom and duck. Thanks for listening. Dennis and Lori Brook are repeat pilgrims with experience on the Camino Francis, Camino del Norte, Way of St. Francis, and the Via Podiensis. You can read their stories from the road at worldrovers.com. All right, Dennis and Lori. So we're talking about the section of the Via Podiensis today between Moissac and Condom, which is about 85 kilometers. We're going to break it into three stages. I know you walked it in four stages. A lot of people will walk it in four. It's about 85 kilometers. So that works out to about 20 kilometers a day, which is a really nice pace, but we'll do it in three. And we'll start with Moisak to Ovilar, which is 20 kilometers. And it is probably the flattest walk of the entire Via Podiensis. Yeah, that makes sense so much of it along the canals and stuff, which is really pretty. Yeah. So talk me through that, the walk leading Moisak and heading out this day. What do you recall?
0: So we met a bunch of different pilgrims. Mm-hmm. So actually we followed a bunch of different pilgrims. Walking along the canal for the longest time, we saw no boats, no ships, nothing. But finally we started to see the barges, the cyclists were coming, A lot of cyclists along
2: the canal. I mean, it's funny. One of the cyclists stopped and talked to us. Somehow he recognized us as Americans. I don't know how they do this because we try to dress like locals. But he stopped and he had a daughter or something in Chicago. So he was talking to us. We we must have stopped and talked for like about five minutes or so. But he was doing a long distance cycle from like Paris or something. So a lot of cyclists out.
1: and there are people who will just do the Mediterranean to Atlantic canal route, which passes through here. So that's some of the people who are whipping past is people who are going coast to coast.
2: Yeah. And that, that might have been him. Yeah. Because we saw more than one cyclist on him. But Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful path. And uh, like Lori says, you have eventually run into barges and stuff that people are living on. It's very idyllic.
0: But we did have to go off the path to get a snack.
2: Yep, yeah, there's one point, in fact, it's in your guidebook, you have to go off about a kilometer or two, but this day was kind of cool because people were really helpful. Like we went off the canal route to go get something to eat and a snack and people were like directing us, this is how you get back. But probably one of the highlights of that day is towards the end of the canal route, we go off and there's this strawberry farm on the left. We were hiking this starting in April through May part of Maine. And there was a strawberry farm there. So we go there and they're selling big flats of strawberries. Well, all we want is a box. And the guy won't take our money. <laughs> so, yeah, we tried to offer him money and ah, no, just go ahead and take it. And so, he,
0: he picked the best of the strawberries. I mean, he couldn't have been nicer. And he knew we were pilgrims. It was really a blessing.
2: Yeah, that was pretty
1: fun. Do you find it boring at all? It's about 14 kilometers on the canal walking in a straight line. How was that experience, 14 kilometers of that?
0: It was very flat, so my (laughs) feet were very tired, but it was such a pretty day. There were flowers along, the grass was green, it was early May. It was really beautiful, so it it was long, (laughs) but it was nice.
2: All right, and then we got off and did our lunch break at a little small town up inside. This, I think, was the day where Lori had one of those French words that confused her.
0: So, you know where they say where the bread is, the depot de pan? Yeah. Well, to me, reading that in English, it was depot of pain.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Depot of pain, yeah. so But it was all about bread. It is the reality on pilgrimage that the the pain is following you everywhere, but at least in that sense, it's a good thing. There is an option for people who are walking this route if the canal is too much. There is a high-level variant that will take you off the canal a little bit sooner. It's not especially scenic. It's more work. You're going up into the hills and then back down, but it is an option. But I walk it generally at a much warmer time of year than you did. So you were walking in April. I was there in early July when it was quite hot. And the nice thing about the canal at that point is that you have tall trees over the top of you. So it's almost certainly going to be a shady walk and alongside the water, so it feels much cooler. Yeah, yeah. No, lots of places
2: to stop for picnic or whatever off the trails.
0: And about two-thirds of our group coming out of Moishek did take the higher route. Okay. There was only about a third of us that did the whole
1: canal. Right. Well, you, you do have that detour of Malaus, as you mentioned, where you go off route and you have a cafe and a grocery, and then towards the end of the canal, you've got to go back up the hill again to go into Pomvik, and then... You have this stretch of an overpass where you cross over multiple canals and all kinds of stuff, and then you you descend into farm country. And I, I'm imagining maybe this is where the strawberry farm was as you were crossing the interior after leaving the canal, and it is really rich agricultural country all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, it was a very
2: flat area of strawberry fields. Like We grew up in the Seattle, South Seattle uh, area where there's all kinds of strawberry fields, but yeah, it was that kind of country. One of the other things that we ran into on this day is, you know, it's early in the season. And so there's all these frogs hatching. Mm. And so the frogs have a French accent or something. <laughs> they do not sound like our local frogs, but we recorded it, put it in a little short video on our website that uh,
1: has the French frog accent. <laughs> they just don't pronounce the S at the end of the ribbit. That must have been it. Yeah. Well... At the end of that little interior stretch, and I haven't had strawberries before, but I have hit a farm stand in July. I, you know, different things are growing at different points of the year, but it is exciting to come across that. And then there's the small village of Espalais, You cross the big Garonne River, and then you have like the only really noticeable uphill of the day, which is going into Ovilar.
2: And now we actually
1: stayed in St. Antoine, yeah, so you went further. You had a longer day out of Mossack than we're talking about here. Yeah, we we divided ours up a little bit differently in part
2: because we wanted to hit certain towns. And then partly we actually had an early season heat wave. Mm. Later on, there was a day where there were two sections that were about 30 kilometers, and so 60 kilometers total. We actually broke it up into 20-kilometer days.
1: But yeah, this we went a little bit farther. We went to St. Antoine. So, you just had a break in Ovillar, and it's one of the most beautiful villages in France, another one of the many along this walk. Every French person says,
2: Oh, my village is the most
1: beautiful town in France. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember much as you uh, passed through the village?
0: Isn't that where we had lunch?
1: Yeah, they all blend together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all blend together, but.
2: Yeah, I think we did stop and we had uh, lunch at a picnic table or did a stop along the river
1: there. The village of Ovilar, you climb up the hill and then you are overlooking the Garonne River beneath you. It looks very different from a lot of the other villages along the way because almost everything is made out of brick. Yeah. And so you have the circular market hall in the center of the main plaza. You have a tall clock tower that's very memorable that you pass underneath. Right, clock tower with an arch. Yes. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, we definitely
2: have a good photo of that.
1: The first couple times I walked, I did what you did. I pushed on to St. Anthony. And the last few times, I've stopped in Ovilar. And one reason is that the municipal jeet there in Ovilar is fantastic. I think a lot of people expect that when you encounter a municipal jeet, it's a little bit more basic. The municipal jeet in Ovilar, though, has... An absolutely outstanding kitchen, which is basically the first thing that I'm looking for, especially traveling with a group. You know, we want to be able to cook together. It's a great kitchen, really comfortable space, great yard. So I think that's a really nice factor there. And then, you know, you have a grocery, you have a bakery in town. So you have some stuff that can see you through the night.
0: Yeah, nice.
1: And Ovilar will always be in my memory because we were there when France won the World Cup. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: getting to watch that in the bar with all the locals was awesome it was slightly less awesome to have fireworks exploding all night they weren't colorful fireworks they were just booms going on for the next three hours but nonetheless that's my OVlar story but you just had a break there and then you were continuing on so take me to the finish line of this day which is the beginning of what i'm gonna call the second stage for our conversation which is a long stage. It's a stage that is maybe too long for a lot of people, 33 kilometers Ovilard to Lecture. You took a bite out of it here, going the eight kilometers further to Saint Antoine. What's that like? And in fact, that's exactly why we did it, because that was a long stage. So we broke it up. Yeah.
0: Saint Antoine, you come into the village, finally, and <laughs> there was a Great restaurant with a plaza out front, so it felt like hundreds of pilgrims mm-hmm. are sitting there drinking and eating and talking and just meeting each other and having a great time. We met a young woman who had the same backpack I had, and she couldn't understand why hers was so uncomfortable, and so we got to spend some time and, and help her figure it out.
2: We both wear Gregory backpacks, which have a little bit different support system. And, you know, we, we've been noticing her for days, you know, she was wearing it wrong and looked really yeah. uncomfortable But I mean, you don't necessarily want to tell someone they're not doing the right thing. But, you know, fortunately, she came over and asked Lori for help. And so after that, she looked a little more comfortable and we never saw her again. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's such a hard situation when you see someone unnecessarily suffering, but you also don't want to intrude or impose upon them.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, fortunately, she asked for help. One other thing that was interesting about San Antoine is we met only the second American. This was like day 18 for us. Yeah, May 6th. Yeah, Yeah, so I think this is day 17 or 18 for us. And in all that time, we'd met one American just randomly for like an hour. and She was leaving that day. But this day, we met a guy that we'd been hearing about from all the other pilgrims. (laughs) And it's because he's a good-looking young guy from Idaho named Luke. So we actually ran into him, and he was only the second American in our five weeks on the chimau le Pue that we met. And we ran into him a number of different times and Taki He goes, oh, I'm so glad to hear an American accent for a while. Lucky because he
0: spoke French. Oh, yeah, he so spoke pretty good French. Everyone knew him.
2: Especially the young women, they knew him. So uh, Saint-Antoine was... A nice place. And in fact, we stayed in a Jeep way up onto the hill above it. Climb up, get a good view of it. And then the next day you climb down to the hill to start again.
1: It's a lovely little village where parts of the walls are still there, especially as you enter, right? You come under the gate on the side of town. It certainly feels very medieval as you walk down the one main street in the center of the village. It's a really nice setup. Yeah, no, it was
2: a good place to stay. Now, hearing you talk about the normal end of the stage sounds pretty cool, but... Uh...
1: I think the point you made is an important one. You certainly can make your decisions about where to stay each day based on the day itself, but often the decision on one day is setting up the next day's decision. Right. And so being able to have an appropriate amount of kilometers so that you can overnight and tour makes a lot of sense because it is a really nice place. When I think about this as a long stage, 33 kilometers, one of the things that I think about is not all 33 kilometer days are made equal. Like a 33 kilometer day where you have one stop the whole day, one chance at like maybe a break, some food, that feels really hard. What's nice about this stage, whether you stay in Ovilar or St. Antoine is, it's kind of rare for the second half of the Via Podiensis that you actually have a series of towns of pretty good size that are like five kilometers, six, seven apart. So there are a number of different places to break up the walk and help you to feel like you're making progress.
0: Right, without killing yourself.
1: Right. (laughs) To put it in perspective, one of the other things is we were actually
2: doing La Cui all the way to Santiago, but we're doing it by the Camino Norte, So we were pushing ourselves a little hard because we didn't know if we could do the whole thing in 90 days. And it turned out it only took us 10 weeks. But at that point, we're going, ah, we can't really lollygag a lot because we just don't know at this point.
1: Yeah, and that's a factor, too, for those of us coming in where, you know, we have 90 days max. And sure, would be nice to make it to the finish line, right? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So this stretch also, for me, this feels like Tuscany, this walk and part of that is the architectural style in ovilar to kick it off and then the walk to saint antoine and then even beyond it is kind of these gently undulating hills a lot of sunflowers are in bloom. maybe not in april come back in july and you're going to see the sunflowers all over the place lovely farm country all the way through i just think it's a really great place to go walking
0: it yeah. was, and so you had sunflowers, but for us, it was red poppies.
1: Oh, all, all over through
0: the fields, just beautiful red poppies.
2: I'm jealous, and grain too. The grain was just starting to come up. Yeah, because I remember your guidebook talking about sunflowers. We go. I bet you that's a sunflower field, and <laughs> yeah, we were way too early for it there.
0: So, do you remember a little honor site just out of San Juan? It was, I think, a family ran a little honor pilgrim stand and there was sweet bread and coffee
1: and there's kind of a view from there right like it's a perch by a tree and there's a view yep. yeah it was
0: perfect timing for us because i don't think dennis had had his second cup of coffee so right. it was great
2: but yeah it was right out of san antoine and there was a big pot of hot coffee and some pastries and that but yeah that was a good morning stop.
0: the next thing that was big that i remember was the church the ruins of the church
1: in flamarens yeah.
0: We didn't know, uh, we didn't expect it. It was a surprise. So that was amazing.
1: Yeah. So you you climb the hill up into Flamarens and it's got these two really, really striking structures. You have the chateau, which has now reopened in part as a gite, So people can stay in a castle in Flamarens. And then there is the church. And the funny thing to me about the church is if it were actually intact, I don't know how impressive it would be. I don't know if I would remember it. But the fact that it is just this crumbling shell of a ruin, yes, I immediately can picture the entirety of it. Yeah, that's a good point, because you walk into these churches and you go, man, if this church was in
2: Tacoma or Seattle, or <laughs> anywhere in the United States, it'd be a destination. But here it's just, oh, yeah, it's another church. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was unique, because like you say, it was a ruin.
0: And two of the pilgrims we walked with, I think, got to stay at that chateau. They did stay at the chateau. Had great things to stay.
1: Yeah, I would love it. That's one of those places where every year I think I need to figure out a way to time my schedule to be in Flamarens. But especially with a group, you know, the the Gite and the chateau is still pretty small right now. So I think they take six to eight pilgrims max. So not quite doable with students. Yeah, just pitch a tent in the uh, old church. So. (laughs) So that's Flamarens. And as I said, there are these just frequent stops over the course of the day. So about eight kilometers to San Antoine, about five kilometers to Flamarens, and then back out into the, the rolling fields and on to Miradou, which is just four kilometers further.
0: I don't know if that was where we found the Saturday market. I cannot remember the name of the town, but it could have been that. Yeah. Just lucked out. It was Saturday and they were having their market. So there were cool cars there was colorful stalls and the best part of market day is all the foods to try
1: yeah it's awesome miradu is again you come up on a hill then you kind of descend into the village and it basically the the pilgrim route just follows the the little highway through miradu so you got a grocery that's off to the left you got a bakery and a cafe off to the right and then you know dennis hearkening back to what you just said a moment ago it feels just like a random small village, Miradu, but the Gothic church there is huge. It just seems disproportionately large to the size of the town today.
2: In fact, yeah, so now that you describe it, yeah, that was definitely Miradu. And there were so many times where we just like missed market day. Yeah, <laughs> We missed market day. Oh, it's tomorrow or it's today. But yeah, we caught this one. It was great market. And like Lori said, they were having an old car show. It's these old Citrons. Basically the French version of a V-dub, but yeah, those things so ugly, they're cute. But yeah, (laughs) we stopped at the market there and got some food. And that's one of the fun things about these little towns is catching a market or going to a small store. and
1: It's just stuff that we just don't see here in the United States. It's funny that you mentioned that timing, because as I think about it, I think I have often walked through here on Sundays. And I'm thinking about that because of the next village, Castet arui which is just a really quiet place. Unlike Miradou and Flamarens, it's not up on a hill. It's down in a pretty flat area, a lot of trees. You pass through like a small residential street, and then you come up on the church and opposite just a village restaurant. And every time I come to this village restaurant, all of the tables spread out across this patio are filled with people. Cars line the streets because everyone's driven out from the city to come have dinner in the village on the Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really neat, like the rhythm of life and how people come and go out of the villages, depending on what's happening. And that's all I think about with Casta Rui is like, I bet it would be nice. I bet it would be really, <laughs> a really good place to to hang out. But. I never actually time it right to eat in the restaurant. And that's the main thing there. Yeah. And then the longest stretch of the walk into Lectour follows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we got into Lectour and we stayed at an old rectory. Remember,
2: you come up the hill and the rectory is on the left. hmm Right. And so this, this was kind of cool. This is a huge building and the rooms are like two stories tall. And there were only about 10 of us there. I mean, you know how you basically you meet different pilgrims that you know along the way. So we actually had met a couple of French people. There was a guy named Max, and he was a Parisian pastry chef. And he wasn't sure he wanted to continue with the pastry career field. So that was one of the reasons he was walking the Caminos, trying to decide what he wanted to do with his life. And then there was Isabel, who we called Izzy. She was funny because she spoke English, excellent English, but she spoke it with an Australian accent. We finally asked her one day, okay, where did you come up with this accent? She had worked in Australia for three years. I worked in Australia for a couple months one time, so it kind of placed the accent. Yeah, there were some of the interesting characters, fun characters that we walked along with. And the good thing is on the Camino uh, Podiensis, there's a lot of places where people don't speak English. So it's a little bit of a challenge. My two years of high school French only got me so far, and you know, brushing up on Duolingo only does so much. but yeah, Max and Izzy were there to bail us out plenty of time. yeah, the old rectory was was a really cool building and re- really cool city.
0: well, and like Tour was amazing. So much to see.
1: I'm thinking again about the experience that we have, the different experiences we have walking at different times in the year. And so for me, this stretch is always, Maybe it sticks in my memory more because it's always hot. (laughs) It's the end of the day. It's a 12-kilometer push onto Lecture. And so two things stick out for me along that last part of the walk. One is you can see Lecture for a long time. Right. You see that tall cathedral tower in the distance. Right, right. And the Chemin does not go in a straight line towards it. It is a maddeningly circuitous approach, and you keep wondering, why am I walking this way when Lecture is over there? So that's one thing. But the other thing is, the Lecture melon is being harvested when you're walking in July. And that includes walking past a big like melon stand at one point when you cross a highway on the walk in. And so that's something that also is relevant for, you know, April versus July.
2: So now the interesting
1: thing is April and May, we were seeing all these, they looked like mini
2: greenhouses. Basically what it was is there were rows and rows of something planted and they had these little plastic domes, long igloo domes that ran 40, 50 meters. And so we asked someone what they were and that was how they protected the melons early in the season. So we just saw what they were doing. You got to actually eat them. So mm. yeah, we're only slightly jealous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're going to get some melon at Jeet dinners when you're in this area in July. Oh, yeah. No. Well, And we we actually did have some melon along the way. But, but yeah, it we
2: it wasn't as fresh, I'm sure, as what you were getting.
1: Yeah. But I do, Lori, like you, I love Lecture. The cathedral is magnificent right in the center. And there's a municipal swimming pool that is right behind the cathedral. It's on like a terrace near the hilltop, overlooking the entire valley behind it. Probably not open in April, open in July. But if you do go back in April, there is a spa and thermal swimming pool area, and they have a discount for pilgrims. It's like an afternoon of luxury if you are looking for it in the middle of a walk.
0: Very sorry we missed that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So next time, you have that to look forward to. Okay, so that's two of the three stages. And I know that you broke this last one into two, which makes a ton of sense, because it allows you to overnight in one of the highlights of the walk, which is La Romieu. So we're going lecture to condom now. If you look at it on a map, you're going to be confused. <laughs> yeah. Because... <laughs> this is another one of those come on guys why can't we go in a straight line yeah you know in a straight line this is probably a 21 kilometer day instead it's a 32 kilometer stage and it's entirely to be able to loop through la romeu which was founded by a pilgrim the story goes and and so they loop it in so what stands out to you in this stretch So this was a really interesting day. I was an Air Force
2: officer for seven years, and so I studied military history a lot. And this was actually VE Day. It was a Sunday. It was VE Day, and it was also Mother's Day. We went through a small village that had a VE Day celebration going on. One of the things you notice all through France, you go through these little tiny villages, right? There may be a couple hundred people there. And there's a war memorial. Yeah with a dozen names on it, because during World War One, nearly two million French people died, not just military, but civilians. And it was like over 4% of their population. That's horrendous. And you see it in all these war memorials in these little tiny villages. So we went through a small village. You probably know the name of it, but basically the path circles around a church. Marcelon. That sounds Wait. right. Yeah, and there's a graveyard there. And then you head down the hill after it. But at the time, they were doing a celebration, uh, a memorial celebration, and they were playing music, and they were reading off the names of all the war dead.
0: It was very touching.
2: Yeah, very moving. And then there was a, a small pilgrim stop that was just right below the church. We stopped there and hung out with a couple of different people that we hadn't met before. But they, one of them was actually planning on doing some hiking in Seattle. And so we were talking to them, but that was the thing that really kind of stood out to me because you see all these different war memorials and here it kind of comes to a head. They're celebrating the end of the war in Europe with a memorial for all these different people that died in, in this little tiny village.
0: But then we come into La Romieu. La, Rumi. La Thank, you. Thank you. And that was, it was a hot afternoon. There were a lot of people. It's Mother's Day. It right. was a lot going on. So we finally get through, and we end the day at Camp Florence. Mm -hmm. It's a resort camp. It was pure indulgence. We got a little trailer, and it had a shower and a kitchen, and there was a wonderful restaurant, and Dennis got to go swimming. Right.
2: There was the pool there. I don't know if you've ever stayed there. Mm -mm. There's a nice pool. It's not really great for doing laps, but and the staff there was really great, just staying at this trailer camp. There's a lot of people that bring their own trailers, but they have a lot of different camps and that for pilgrims and that too. A great indulgence after a hot day.
1: I love that you're both calling staying in a trailer an indulgence. <laughs> you know, it It is, but like, you know, it's a pilgrimage indulgence. Private room. La Romeo is famous among pilgrims because of the cats. Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
0: oh and we have a picture of a cat sitting on a high pedestal looking down on us.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah, all the cat statues and stuff like that. So very cool.
1: Yeah, you just sit in the plaza in the center, have your most expensive cafe ole of the trip. I think I spent like 4 euros <laughs> on a cafe ole. It was crazy. And you take in the cats. It's a nice place to hang out, and then if you can time it, the schedule is a little tricky to visit the old Collegiate Church. You,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: and especially since you were there on a holiday, it was probably impossible. But right, it was,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. It's disappointing that the access is as tricky as it is, because it is a, a marvelous visit. You climb up into the old chapels upstairs. You have really nice views, but. Yeah, it's been about 50-50 proposition for me being able to get there when it's open or not. Well, we were on the wrong
2: side of the (laughs)
0: 50-50.
1: But you were busy indulging yourselves in the pool and in your trailer. So who has time for a church when you've got a trailer? That's right. (laughs) All right. So that's La Romeo, a lovely village. All the walls are intact around it. It's a great place to spend the afternoon or the night. And then we're on to what was your fourth day and the second half of this long stage towards Condom.
0: It was a nice day.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things is you see very little wildlife when you're hiking. I mean, you don't see squirrels, you don't see rabbits. I mean, in a, we walk around a park here and we'll see 20 squirrels, maybe we'll see rabbits and stuff. And hiking across France, we may saw maybe three or four deer and this morning, going out of La Romeo to Condom, I actually saw a fox.
1: Yeah. Go
2: across the trail, which is really unusual. I think we saw maybe in 10 weeks, we saw maybe a dozen different wild animals, a muskrat. And this morning was a fox. And unfortunately, it was the proverbial quick brown fox. So there is no photographic evidence. But I know it was not a cat, it was a fox.
1: Really hard to catch a fox in a photo.
0: But walking into Condom was nice. You know, you're coming down, crossing the river, and they had that wonderful welcome center. And, and it was well-staffed, and they were grabbing pilgrims right off the bridge and giving them all this information. It was, it was very nice.
1: I love that you jumped directly to Condome because it's such a fun place to talk about. <laughs> and also, I think sometimes when you have a short walk like you had, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like you blink and the walk's over. There's not a ton to say about the walk. I'll just note that given that you were talking about VE Day, the village that you passed through on the walk this day, Castle sur lavignon
0: Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
2: I Can't skip that. So one of
1: the things we do is when we travel, we will read
2: stuff beforehand, like about the culture and history. So when we did the uh, Way of St. Francis hike across Italy, we read about Leonardo and we read uh, Italian history. Well, I was listening to an audio book on this walk called a Madame Foucault secret war. Mm. And it's about this amazing woman who in world war two, she ran most of the big French spy ring during World War II. And, you know, this is back in the day when women just flat out didn't do that, but she was like the person who ran the spy ring. So, yes, we got to that town, and there were all these things about the battles and that and of resistance. So, yeah, you're right. It was a hotbed of French resistance during World War Two, And we had actually stopped at the Jeet. Just on the entrance to that town, stop for a drink and talk to the Jeet owner there, which was a nice break. But yeah, a little tiny town, but yeah, all kinds of
1: history took place there. Yeah, it seems like a very welcoming little village. And the only other thing I'd note about the walk from there is there's a church partially ruined in the middle of nowhere, Chapelle Saint-Germain. If it's a hot day like we sometimes have when we're doing a long stage here, it's just like the perfect place for a mid-walk nap. It's shady and grassy and there's even a fountain to refill water so for the people out there who who love a good afternoon midwalk nap that's your spot. But let's carry on to Condom. And and yes for people who are just hearing the town name for the first time, yes, it is spelled Condom. It has no relationship to the condom, but they certainly are enjoying the marketing implications of it. But what do you remember about this one of the largest towns on the walk? And so the
2: funny thing, you talk about the name, I I looked it up, I guess in French, condom means something like false friend. And if you want the name of condom in French, it's actually preservatif or something. So they have nothing to do with each other in French. But yeah, we were totally amused with it.
0: And one of the reasons we wanted to get to condom early was we wanted to do some shopping because the condom has a communal, like the sporting store. Well, sure, right? Monday morning, we're
1: going to go shopping.
0: Oh, no. Of course, it's the day after Mother's Day. It's
1: closed. But Mondays, I think Mondays are worse than Sundays in France. Yeah. There's two big towns that have a Camino
2: lock. They say, oh, these are open every day. Well, the two days that we got there, they were both closed. We use black diamond trekking poles, and they have a special screw on tip. We were going through our tips. We have spares, but we were going through our tips a lot faster than we expected. So both the Camino locks, we wanted to stop, look for the Black Diamond Poles, and no, both Camino locks were closed on us. Just that bad luck thing, because everyone else talks about what an awesome place it is. We'll just have to take their word for it.
1: It is one of those things where anytime you are anticipating that you're going to need gear, like three, four, five days, you want to plan that out because the hours of operation are so hard to predict that you can get yourself in a bad spot if your sunday monday lines up in the wrong place
0: what we did hear was that you could call ahead all them mm-hmm. left a message it's possible they would open for you
2: which we found out the right. day after yeah and so it's funny you know we're traveling You know, meeting up with all these French people like, oh, yeah, that's French service for you. (laughs) So So Condome was, I mean, it's another great town. So the fun thing is, as you know, it's the home of D'Artagnan, the guy who wrote about the Three Musketeers, which I understand is based partly on truth. So you go to the cathedral there, which was supposed to have a pilgrim mass and for various reasons wasn't. Maybe it was because it was the Monday after Mother's Day. But yet the church was amazing and one of the things we like to do is we like to look at the different styles of stations of the cross and the cathedral in there is the stations of the cross are actually these really amazing unique paintings instead of carvings it's just really amazing unique paintings something you would want to hang on your wall so the cathedral condo was pretty amazing and of course right outside the key is the statue of the three musketeers. Yeah. What are they, about 10 feet tall?
0: They're up there.
2: Yeah, so we're like hanging around. Of course, everyone's taking their picture with the musketeers, and you're using your trekking pole to mimic a sword. But yeah, very cool town, very fun.
0: And we stayed in a Ajit kind of as you're coming into town, so not, not in the center or anything. And it, it was really nice. We had it still early enough in the season that we ate outside for the first time. Yeah, very first time. A nice tent. So we had all the pilgrim dinner and the wonderful French food. A lot of fun.
2: But it was a little sad for me. Yeah, because I, I had a Tilly hat that I'd gotten from REI right before this. And I just loved that hat. And I either left it at a restaurant in town or in the church, or someone took it from the storage at the Gite, so I never saw the hat again, even though I had my number written in it, no one called me about it. but alas,
0: yeah, fine. i'll
1: I'll be fine. I got a replacement
2: when we got home, but that's what I remember condom for one thing is I lost my hat.
1: Your hair can withstand the absence of a hat better than mine. so um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for me, the cathedral is just absolutely magnificent. This route is great for Romanesque. It's lighter on the Gothic, but this is absolutely fabulous French Gothic. Maybe the best stained glass on the walk. It ignites in color if you can be there on a sunny day. There are a few Jeets there right at the entrance to town, which is very convenient to just catch pilgrims as they come in. The last couple of times I've stayed in a place that's further outside of the center, L'Ancien Carmel. It's an old monastic complex. It's interesting because today, part of it is devoted to a small pilgrim sheet. And then another part is basically retirement, elderly community. You eat together. You all come into the dining hall at the same time at the end of the day. So for me, having high schoolers, you know, having this mix at dinner of high schoolers with 70-something French folks is a fun combination. You got to tell them it's never
2: too early to start scouting your retirement (laughs) (laughs) home.
1: Could do a lot worse than retiring in Condom. It's Uh a nice
2: place. Oh, of course, the other interesting thing about Condom is one of the fun things about hiking across France is every different place has their own... Cuisine, you know, you start in Le Puy and, you know, there's a lot of lentils and sausages and stuff. And of course you get to Condome and it's Armanac. Yeah. The local liqueurs, which I believe is centered in Condome. Like Lori said, we were eating outside with a bunch of pilgrims and some of them were local people. They were just like biking for the day and they were staying there overnight and they brought their own local versions of Armanac. So we're trying
1: all kinds of different Armanacs.
0: You probably didn't get to do that if you're with a high school.
1: <laughs> no, we have we have rules. Yeah, no, no alcohol for anyone, including the leaders. Oh, bummer. You have to go with us next time. We don't have that rule. <laughs> I think it probably makes the walking easier in the morning. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Our term for wine is painkiller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's either that or ibuprofen, right? You just need to pick one. Condom has a museum of Armagnac that is possible to visit, but I think people generally would prefer to pay their respects to it in a bar.
2: And there's certainly plenty of bars there. Good pizza place right off one of the squares, which was where we had lunch. Because, yeah, it was a very short day for us. We got in early and had a chance to hang around, explore, and look for the closed Camino lock. Not that I'm bitter about that.
1: It's a weird kind of layout for the town, you know. It's got the the river running through the middle. It's kind of sprawling. It moves in a lot of different directions, but that center right around the cathedral is a good spot to while away the afternoon. And there we are, eighty five kilometers, three or four days. We've made it. Thanks to both of you for helping me remember it.
0: Oh, thank you. It was a fun time. <music>
1: Dr. Jean Levine is professor of environmental studies at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. Her article published in Gastronomica, titled How to Stuff a Duck, Learning Artisan Foie Gras Production in France, describes her six-week experience on a foie gras farm in southern France. Thank you again for speaking with me. When I decided I wanted to do a conversation focused on duck, I wasn't sure who to talk to, and so I was... Relieved and excited to find your article in Gastronomica, because it just brought together all of these different aspects of ducks so well. And at the forefront of that is the fact that you you actually did your homework. You went and you checked this out firsthand. So let's start there. You spent six weeks living and working at a foie gras farm in southwestern France. So why did you do that? What brought you there?
3: So I teach environmental studies, and my background is in geography. And in the last decade or so, my research interests have really shifted to food in France and the politics of food and looking at genetically modified organisms at first, and then later working with small farmers and wanting to understand there's a much richer tradition of small family farms today in France and farmers markets than there is in the United States. And I started working on farms through the WOOF program. At the same time, I what really led me to the Fogart Farm was something called magret. So magret is a steak made from the breast of a duck. And the first time I had it in a restaurant, I literally thought it was steak. You could not have convinced me that that came from a bird. It's red in color. It's meaty. It has a nice layer of crispy fat on the top. So I didn't know exactly what it was. I thought it was some special kind of steak. And then, you know, I... Tried to find it again, and eventually, through the course of my, you know, on-the-ground research, I discovered that it was duck, and it became my favorite dish. I practiced cooking it until I got, you know, relatively good at it. My daughters loved it. My daughters were with me the first time I spent a semester in France in 2008. Then I slowly learned that this particular duck breast only comes from a duck that's been fattened for foie gras. Hmm. So that gave me a little bit of pause. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've heard of foie gras. I know it's controversial. I know it has something to do with, you know, force feeding a duck. And so that made me really curious to want to learn how it's made. And I thought, well, I should go see for myself. I've already been working on other kinds of farms. I've been making goat cheese. I've been working in gardens, vegetables, things like that. But in fact, if I hadn't already been working on other farms in the same region, I don't think I could have ever done this because I had to have a local person who could vouch for me, who could say, this person's okay. She's not a crazy American anti-foie gras campaigner. She will be helpful and she won't be in the way. So someone that I had already worked with basically did the introduction for me and helped me find a farm. Yeah, I went to, to see for myself.
1: Gotcha. And we'll talk more about that experience, but I want to take a step back first and just ask about duck more generally, because here in the United States, obviously among poultry, chicken, 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 turkey shows up somewhere in there, but duck doesn't appear very much on the menu here. Duck, for anyone who's ever been to southwestern France, by contrast, is really central to the cuisine there. So why? Why is it so prominent in that part of France?
3: So I think it has to do with history. I'm not an expert in this area, but I think it's because the Romans, when they colonized France, they brought this culture of not just eating ducks, but fattening ducks with them. So the Romans got it from the Egyptians. The Romans had been fattening ducks for foie gras for centuries, millennia, using figs as food. And they brought this culture of... Raising ducks, fattening them up, making foie gras. And in fact, it became really important, I think, to this region because it's not a very wealthy region in France. And in the north of France, the main fat that's used for cooking is butter throughout the entire northern half of France. In the Provence area, you know, sort of the southeast, it's olive oil. In this region of the southwest, the main cooking fat became duck fat as a result of this production. And it was also very, very, very common for centuries for families who were subsistence farming. So they have a small farm, you know, they're growing some vegetables, they're growing some grains, they probably have a cow, they have some chickens, but they would also have a few ducks and they would fatten them up and they would sell the foie, which was very valuable. It's worth, you know, half of the price of the duck is the foie and they would eat the rest. And this was something that the women traditionally did because the ducks are there, you know, next to the house in the barnyard. Actually, they started with geese. It wasn't ducks at the time, it was geese. And they had to feed them three times a day. It became a source of income. Raising geese or later ducks in this way was an important source of external income for small subsistence farmers.
1: And so today, anyone walking through is going to see duck on menus in a variety of different forms. You've mentioned magre. You've touched on foie gras. What are the other like major ways that duck appears on menu in the area?
3: So another classic way is called a confit,
1: mm-hmm.
3: C-O-N-F-I-T. And that means basically cooking duck or any kind of meat, but usually it's duck in its own fat. So you cook it slowly at low temperature, pretty much covered in fat, and the meat becomes incredibly tender, incredibly delicious with salt and herbs. Confit is very popular. There's also cassoulet, which is kind of the main traditional dish of this region. So it's uh, white beans cooked with duck, especially the confit leg of duck, and some sausage and some other ingredients. But there's also, you see a lot on menus, a salad that's made with the gizier, which is the gizzard of the duck, which they also cook confit. One of the things that was most interesting was that I guess the rest you wouldn't find on a menu, but they really do eat everything, every part of the duck. So at the market, you know, we would sell the neck, we would sell the the gizzards, the hearts, even the fat is sold as cooking fat, and even the skin. You take the skin and you cut it in pieces and fry it. And again, when you're rendering the fat, this is a natural byproduct, and it's basically the bacon bits of Southern France.
1: So let's talk about the life on the farm that you ended up working at for six weeks, what was that like? What is the the rhythm of life like on a small French farm today?
3: I don't know how typical this particular farm was. This farm was like any farm that I'm familiar with in the U.S. or when my when I was young, my father was a farmer, dairy farmer. It was just very intense. On this particular farm, the farmer produced ducks for foie gras and migraine, and the other stuff. He also grew all the corn for the ducks and a bunch of other corn to sell as a cash crop, wheat, sunflowers, and did four farmer's markets a week. So there was just a lot of work, especially in the summer with, you know, irrigating corn and harvesting wheat and feeding the ducks twice a day, every day, slaughtering them. We slaughtered them on site as well. So it was really intense. He pretty much works... 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. in summer, seven days a week. And in the winter, which is the peak season for foie gras, it's 5 a.m. to 11 p.m.
1: That's incredible. Yeah. And horrifying.
3: Not a healthy lifestyle.
1: Is it profitable?
3: It is profitable.
1: Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's more work, but it's more profitable than doing other things that I've done in France. So it's more profitable than market gardening, you know, fruits and vegetables, or cheese or raising lambs or calves for meat. It can be quite profitable, but you do have to have the expertise to be able to do it.
1: I want to talk about foie gras now. It gets so much attention. So let's start with the process by which foie gras was produced historically. What did that look like?
3: Again, it depends how far you want to go back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I talked about this a little bit in my article. So it, it was the Egyptians who first noticed that if you trapped geese just before their fall migration, they were nice and plump and their livers were especially tasty. And so they thought, oh, let's put out some extra food for them, you know, so that they'll stop and eat even more and then we can, you know, trap them. From there, it's a short step to domesticating them. Then the Romans did the same thing fed them figs and nuts and other kinds of things. I don't know exactly when the idea of using some kind of funnel to give them food came into being, but it's important to note, first of all, that geese and ducks don't have a gag reflex. So it's not anything like what we imagine, when we imagine, you know, someone putting food in our throats with a funnel. In fact, if you think about it, they eat fish whole, right? Fish that have fins and scales and pokey bits on them. So It's not difficult for them to swallow something like corn. And then I know that in France, all the way up until the mid-1960s, it was this traditional culture in southwestern France that had family farms where people would raise a few geese. And some people started to specialize, but you didn't really have big, big farms that were doing this. In the 1960s, someone discovered that ducks were easier to feed than geese. So they developed a cross. So all of the ducks that are, almost all of the ducks that are used today in France for foie gras are a sterile cross. They're like a mule. They're two different species of duck that you can breed together, but then their offspring are sterile. Hmm. And so they're bred in by companies that do that as their main work. And then they arrive as, you know, one day old ducklings at a farm of a person who will raise them. Until the point where they're going to be fed, stuffed. Probably talk about that. So, the Americans use the term force fed for this process, force feeding the ducks. That's not the word that's used in French. French has a word for force feeding, the same exact translation, direct translation that they would use the same context that we would. You know, for someone who's in a hospital and is going to be fed against their will, we would use that word. The word that the French use for feeding the ducks is gavage, or gavé, and it means to stuff, and people use it to talk about stuffing themselves. So, you know, oh, I really stuffed myself with dessert, or, you know, I went to my mom's house and she kept stuffing me with more and more pasta, okay? So this is the word that's used instead of force feeding, which makes the whole context a little different. So someone someone discovered that ducks only need to be fed twice a day in order to make their livers develop a nice creamy fat for foie gras. Geese is three times a day. And also ducks, the, the fattening stage only lasts 11 days. This was the biggest shock for me when I went to the foie gras farm, because this is the part of the process that everyone focuses on, but it's 11 days in the life of the duck. Yeah. So the ducks are four months old three to four months old when they start this last phase of their life. Up until that point, they're out on pasture. They're outside, they're on grass, they're under trees, they're eating when they want to eat. And it's the last 11 days, they are brought into a barn and kept in cages that are pretty large now. They, they have to be larger with new European regulations. And then twice a day, they're fed corn, either a corn mash or some farmers still use whole corn that they soak. In water.
1: You have some pictures in the article and looking at what it was like before the reforms you mentioned, it is not a pleasant image. No. It's less jarring looking yeah. at
3: it post reform. Yeah. The old cages were about the size of a of a mailbox, you know. So the duck couldn't turn around. And that is not the case anymore. They're they're in large cages where they can walk around. There has to be large enough for four or five ducks to be in at a time. And the new cages are large enough that they can stretch their wings all the way out. They also have to be able to take water with their beaks and throw it over their head to wash themselves. So the new cages really are much and much better. And
1: do you have the sense that that has actually been followed across? Oh, yes.
3: Because it's illegal. I mean, they made it that you are going to be put out of, you're going to go out of business if you don't do that. They do have inspectors. And the people that I talked to after they moved to the new cages, they agreed that it was better. Better for the ducks. The ducks can keep themselves cleaner.
1: When you set out, you had some of these ethical concerns on your end about eating Mm magre, about foie gras. Were you able to resolve or reconcile those feelings as you moved through this process?
3: Yes, I was. I was. And part of it was learning, like I said, that it, it really is only 11 days. That made a big difference to me. I also learned, I wanted to see for myself, because another thing I'd read is that you can damage the esophagus of a duck. You know, the way that you feed them is with a metal tube, put it into the mouth, into the esophagus, and then you push a button and the corn mash goes in. So things that surprised me were that it's so fast. It's less than five seconds per duck to feed. Wow. When the farmer's doing it, it's like three and a half seconds per duck. He's been doing it for decades. I was shocked to discover that after only two weeks, I could do it in 10 seconds per duck. And that includes moving from duck to duck. So that includes like reaching out with my hand, holding their head, opening the beak, inserting the tube, putting the corn in, like moving on to the next one. I did five ducks in 50 seconds. It's amazing. So it's very short for them. They don't like having their heads grabbed, of course, but eating the corn itself isn't what bothers them. They sort of shake themselves afterwards and they sit back down and, you know, look around. So I felt a little better about that. And I was worried, as I said, I'd read that you could damage the esophagus, which is why I decided to do my own. So I had uh, 12 ducks that I fed at least once a day. I couldn't always do it twice a day, but that I fed at least once a day for the whole 11 day cycle. And then I put a special little ribbon on the cage so that when we slaughtered them, I knew which ones they were. And after they were taken apart, I looked and I hadn't damaged anything. You know, even as a novice, I hadn't torn anything. They didn't look any different from the ducks that had been done by the other, the farmer. And then, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about the fact that overall, these ducks have pretty good lives. And especially if you compare it to some of the things we do in the U.S. Battery hens would be the main example, you know, poultry. But they're in tiny cages, like the old ones in France, but for their entire lives, not for 11 days, for their entire lives. They're in these tiny cages. They have their beaks cut so that they can't peck the chicken next to them. They are stacked on top of each other. They're in facilities where it's light 24 hours a day to get them to lay more. And that's their entire life. And farrowing sows, you know, the pigs that are having the piglets, they're in crates where they can't stand up and they can't turn around. And so I found it kind of bizarre that people are targeting foie gras as cruelty to animals and not talking about these other things.
1: Why do you think that is?
3: Well, I think it's because it makes an easier target, honestly. I mean, I think that people know that it's going to be very, very difficult to really reform things for the pigs or the chickens, although California is making steps on that. They are currently being sued by other states because California wants to prohibit those kind of farrowing cages for pigs. And some other states are suing California for doing that, arguing that they are infringing on their free trade interstate commerce rights, because I think the law that they passed would say that you can't sell meat made that way in California. Okay. But it's a very long and very difficult process to really reform some of our animal cruelty practices. And if you can get a foie gras ban, you can feel that you've accomplished something, even though it's a tiny, tiny market and it's the level of cruelty is not as severe in my mind, at least and my experience. I think it's a target because it's rare. So I'm the kind of person who's passionately interested in food. I have been my whole life. I remember being eight years old and making a list of foods I wanted to try someday that Things I'd never seen before, like lobster, and I can't even remember what else was on the list. <laughs> oh yeah, bagel with locks—like you couldn't find that in you know the Midwest in the 1970s. I was like, that sounds interesting. I want to try that. <laughs> but i had never seen or tasted foie gras before. I went to France. It's very rare. It's available mostly in very expensive, fancy French restaurants. It has this, you know, sort of elitist connotation. My guess would be probably less, fewer than 5% of Americans have probably even tasted farrah. So they don't have any experience of wanting to eat it. And so it's easy to say, oh, well, let's just ban that.
1: As I think back through every part of the process you described, the one thing I can't yet wrap my mind around is why do they need to be in the cages for the last 11 days? It seems like the stuffing is five to 10 seconds twice a day. So what is the role of the cage during those 11 days?
3: They want them to be indoors and to control the conditions better. And they want them to be not running around the pasture too much. So the more they move around, the more calories they're going to burn. Gotcha. And the less of the fattening effect of the liver. I should also mention, it's interesting that the ducks and geese are... The only species that we, that I know of anyway, that, that do this, where they, if they eat extra fat, it doesn't go anywhere else on their body. It doesn't go to their thighs or their belly like us. It goes to their liver. Okay. And this was an adaptation for migration. So it's kind of taking a natural process and accelerating it in a way. This is also why there's a season for foie gras in France. So there's very little foie gras produced historically in the summer because the geese get too hot and the ducks get too hot and they have feathers. They're going to lose weight from being too hot. You have to have air conditioning if you want to do it in the summer. And the season for foie gras is traditionally in the fall because that's in the ancient tradition. That's when the ducks and geese are naturally wanting to eat more anyway. It's become a holiday food in France, a winter food. Why they need to be in the cages. So there are farmers who do it in other ways. And there is one foie gras producer in Minnesota in the United States Who does it this way? And I saw some farms in France that did it this way. So it's called the park system instead of the cage system. The park is still inside. (laughs) It's a pen. So it's a pen that's about, I'd say, about four feet wide and maybe 12, 15 feet long. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So the ducks are in there and they can wander around and they walk around and they're in the pen, but they can't walk very far, right? 12 feet. (laughs) And then if you have that system, it's narrow enough that the farmer, when they want to feed the ducks, they can put themselves on a stool in the pen and the ducks can't cross from one side of the pen to the other without, you know, having to be lifted over the lap of the farmer. So the farmer will take one duck at a time, feed it, put it on the other side. So it takes a little longer and it's not really practical depending on how many ducks you're going to do. So the farmer who does it that way in Minnesota only does 50 ducks a week And he only does it in the fall and winter season. The farmer I was working with in France did 150 ducks a week in the off season and up to 300 in the winter season. So it would just take too long to sort of go sit in each pen, move from pen to pen, move each duck from one side to the other. So I think the reason for the cages is more practicality than anything else. Being able to quickly move from one duck to the other to be able to feed them.
1: That makes sense. The last thing I want to ask you about is not specifically related to duck, but you've brought up farmer's markets a couple of times. You mentioned at the beginning that you've done some study of the much more prominent role of farmer's markets in France. And for people who are walking across France, that's certainly a highlight as well, stumbling across a farmer's market in the village as you go. So I'm just curious, what have you found? What have you learned? Why are farmers markets so more central to the culture in France today?
3: I think there are several reasons. I think it begins with the fact that the French left the farm a little bit later than we did in the United States. At the start of World War II, there were still 35% of the French were still in agriculture. Wow. And there are a lot more small farms. They don't have these vast tracts of land that are able to be bought up. By large companies. There are a few, but the French have been living in France and farming in France for millennia. So the farms are gotten pretty small and it would be difficult to buy enough pieces of land. So, you know, the farmer that I worked with in this case, and in other cases, I harvested grapes with a winemaker who had the same kind of arrangement. They have little pieces of land. Their farm is not one unit. Their farm is like six, eight, 10 units. And some of them are 20 minute drive to go from one piece to another. So there's more people still involved in farming. There's more people who remember going to their grandparents' farm. And it's a romantic kind of thing in France. One thing that surprised me, not on this farm, but a different farm I was on, is that people would come to the farm for the vacation. You know, they would pay money to go and stay on a farm for two weeks to get out of the city. And with nothing special, right? Nothing going on, especially at this particular farm. but just. Just to have this return to the country. You know, so that's one component is that they like to get things directly from the farmer. Makes them feel more connected with the land and with the past and with the food. Second thing is that, you know, the French are more passionate about food than we are. They spend more of their disposable income on food than we do. They really appreciate the quality of food that you can get at a farmer's market. The freshness, the fact that it might have been picked that morning probably was. The fact that you can know the farmer who produced it that you know that it didn't come all the way across the country or get flown in from spain and a lot of people who who work full-time kind of feel frustrated that they don't have as much time to be able to go to a market you pretty much have to go on a saturday you know if you work full-time and then the market is really crowded so it's better if someone in your house can go on the other days of the week and i think the third thing is that really interesting i've discovered recently well, in the last few years is that the French are way more in tune with the seasons for eating things than we are. So they know that it's okay, right now it's asparagus season and you know it's the beginning of strawberry season and it's the but maybe the very beginning of having some peaches. And then, you know, they can tell you a month from now, like, okay, now it's the season for this. One time I was making a recipe, I wanted to make a dish for the family that I was staying with, and it was in the summer. And I wanted to make a dish that had walnuts in it. My host told me like, well, they're not in season. (laughs) And I was like, what are you talking about? It's a nut. He said, well, I don't think you're going to find any. And I didn't find any at the market. And then I went to the local little co-op organic store and I didn't find any. And I asked the person at the co-op, you know do you have any walnuts? And he said, no, they're not in season. <laughs> so this happened over and over again. And I finally, okay, I came to realize, okay, there's a season for everything. So I think that they appreciate going to the market and finding the stuff that's in season and that we're going to enjoy now. And then I love asparagus and so does my husband in France and we eat it probably two or three times a week when it's in season, and then accept the fact that we're not going to have asparagus for a year. And then when it comes around again, you're really excited.
1: Yeah, I realize now I don't have that kind of food patience as an American. It's just like, I'm going to go have a peach today. I don't know if it's from the United States or from Mexico or from Chile, Argentina, but there's going to be a peach at the supermarket.
3: Yep. No, I've never seen anybody eat a peach outside of the summer in France.
1: Yeah. It is a great place for peaches in the summer though.
3: Yes, it is.
1: Well, Jean, thank you so much. This has been super informative and I've just learned a lot more about duck and about food in France. So I appreciate you talking with me. It's always neat and tidy when a theme emerges across the two different interviews in these episodes. And what stood out this time is just how seasonal the experience of walking through France is. I've mostly walked the Via Podiensis in summer, and so an explosion of yellow sunflowers is one of the dominant views that sticks in my mind. And yet, pilgrims like Dennis and Lori, walking in the spring, experience a completely different world, Bronwyn spoke previously about the joy of passing through the same villages at different times, and it's easy to see why one would keep coming back again and again. It's the same route, and yet it's also a very different route. And it's not just the terrain, not only the flora, it's also the food. I didn't appreciate until speaking with Jean just how much French cuisine shifts by season. And now I'm curious about what I'm missing out on in April and October. And it makes me even hungrier, pun absolutely intended, to visit the Via Podiensis in other parts of the year. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Dennis and Lori Brooke. You can find them at worldrovers.com. Thanks as well to Jean Levine. You can find her writing in the fall 2021 issue of Gastronomica. All episodes the of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at Camino Podcast yeah. at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks for listening. Back next week.